Uh, I was looking for intersections and connections, and certainly in this in these uh, presentations, we uh, are presented with an enormous array of intersections and and connections. Uh, from Pablo, we have uh, the a description of the the impact of the crisis in in um, uh, many countries of the global south. And then recommendations as to what what should be done in terms of uh, protecting countries against the protectionism of the north, uh, support for low-income countries in terms of their. Uh, disputes um, under international law, uh, FDI, questions of financial flows, remittances and aid. Um, similarly, uh, in Tina's presentation, we have a discussion of the impact of the crisis and its effects in, in African countries, um, and then a series of, of suggestions about what should be done in terms of uh, finance and investment, uh, structural reforms and governance, promoting domestic savings, access to credit, diversification of exports, and uh, then on the trade front, the whole questions, uh, those questions around, as you uh, finished, Tina, on, on subsidies um, that have such an impact in, Af in terms of African trade. Uh, and then Raymond's presentation takes a slightly different perspective, but looks at the impact of uh, illicit financial flows and makes a connection with the needs of developing countries. And, um, suggests a um, multilateral kind of uh, a set of uh, priorities in terms of trying to deal with this problem. So I think what, what one of the things that struck me in all of these presentations was the, the reflection back and forth between the international context and the need for action at the international level, and yet the need for strengthening the, the uh, domestic kind of correlation of forces or the domestic um, political responses so that there be some kind of national responses. So we, I see this really interesting back and forth um, question about what has to happen in terms of the domestic social formation or the domestic level of politics. So I would like to open the floor up now for questions. We have, um, we have, well, I've, it's been suggested to me that we have a full half hour, and um, but that will take us into part of our our lunch period. But I know that we have um, many things that can be said about these presentations. So I'd like to invite people to come to the f to the microphones and uh, ask questions of the panelists. And we'll have a discussion about some of these issues that have been raised. And I'll take a number of questions at the beginning so we can gather a few comments from the floor. Please. Thanks very much, Teresa. I, I was impressed with what you just said about making those linkages between the domestic and the international, particularly focusing maybe on uh, focusing my question through the center of Raymond Baker's presentation. And the question I, I have really is about, as you look toward, uh, from the nation to the multinational arena, do you see the emergence of institutions of governance at the global level, at the multilateral level, that in fact can help us with some of these problems? And in particular, I'm thinking about uh, our weak uh, securities and exchange commissions that we, for example, have here in Canada and many other nations. And I'm thinking about the notion of an international tax organization, about whether or not those types of institutions at the global level would be helpful in solving some of these problems and uh, taking some of the arrangements that you suggest and giving them some uh, enforceability. Please. 
Um, Perhaps I could ask uh, if people would identify themselves sure. too and introduce themselves to the group. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm Laurel Gasha Ramirez. I work for the Department of Finance on the G7, G20 Secretariat. Um, and the suggestion to link illicit flows and the needs of developing countries on the agenda of the uh, G20, I was just wondering if you could speak to what you thought would be the most powerful vested interests that might be fighting against that. Can you, sorry, can you hear me? Not really. If, if we were to link, if we were to suggest on the G20 agenda, linking the idea of addressing illicit flows and linking that as a, as a potential source of funding for development, for developing countries, what would be the strongest vested interests fighting against that? And what would be possible ways to work around that? Thank you. I have another question for Raymond Baker. Sorry, yeah. I'm getting, getting to work so hard. Why do you think, I think one of the, the most f fascinating figures that you cited, and this was on your initial survey, was on the sort of percentages of um, multinational uh, evasion of tax versus corruption. If you, if you talk to the Canadian public, I think they would think it was the reverse, that, that you know, multinationals are avoiding about 3% and corruption in, in developing countries is you know, 60 or 70 or 90. Why do you think that focus is? Is it, is it much easier to point the finger and blame someone else than to, to look at yourself? I mean, that would be my assessment. But. Um, I'm also wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, if you focus on the national level strengthening domestic taxation systems and sort of who have been the key players to, uh, to undermine this. Is it sort of the World Bank and IMF with uh, deregulating systems at the national level, um, making it easier for, for money to, to flow in? Great, thank you. Well, that's a nice group of questions to begin the discussion with. And, and uh, Tina and Pablo, don't think that you're going to get off the hook here. I'm going to ask you to reflect on what uh, Raymond says as well. So, um, Raymond, would you like to start us off? Let me comment briefly on, on uh, uh, or, or comment around your question. Um, Interestingly, the nations that we find that are most receptive uh, to our agenda have, uh, up to this point, been European nations. Um, within our task force, for example, uh, which I mentioned, um, are Norway, Germany, France, Spain, uh, the Netherlands, Denmark, uh, Chile is a member of the task force. Um, and the leading group of uh, countries um, with the Secretariat in Paris is a member of the task force. But the, but the drive to look at uh, new sources of financing for development, the drive to uh, think about uh, uh, financial uh, transactions tax, uh, the drive to address illicit financial flows uh, is really coming out of Europe more than it is out of North America. And we'd like to see that situation uh, changed. An international tax organization is going to get a lot of pushback from uh, the Western countries. Uh, in, my, in my judgment, there are earlier battles to fight before we get uh, uh, to that point. As you know, tax havens are under a considerable amount of pressure uh, at the present time. Uh, that's a good thing, um, um, and I think uh, will continue to be uh, under pressure. Um, who fights against the linkage of, uh, of these issues? Um, 
I, I've commented geographically that we find more receptivity in Europe than we do in North America. Um, I hope I'm not offending anyone. Um, we do find a certain amount of resistance to what we're saying within the development community. And the reason for that is uh, that uh, some people within the development community mistakenly think that uh, this is a threat to foreign aid. We're certainly not trying to threaten foreign aid. I say very clearly many times that I'm all in favor of increased foreign aid. Uh, I'm also in favor of curtailing the outflows uh, of illicit money. Right now, the ratio is 10 to 1. For every uh, $1 in foreign aid that we're generally, generously handing out across the top of the table, we're taking back something like $10 in illicit money under the table. Um, strangely enough, uh, some people in the development community have, have um, uh, felt that um, what we are addressing uh, has the potential to turn people against foreign aid, and I'm, I'm certainly not coming from there. I'm all for uh, more foreign aid, uh, more free trade, more FDI, more of all of that, and I'm in favor also of curtailing the illicit financial flows. Um, Fraser, you ask about uh, um, the percentages of the cross-border flows and, and the fact that this would be opposite to what most people in uh, Canada conceive. That's because we have so heavily focused on corruption. Corruption's been on the table for the last, uh, well, basically, if, if you can go back prior to Jim Wolfenson's address to the United Nations, uh, to the World Bank, but his speech to the World Bank was in 1996, in which he put corruption on the table of the World Bank. Um, uh, Transparency International had been trying for uh, three years, four years prior to that uh, to get the issue on the table. Uh, the focus on corruption has led us to focus on those corrupt countries over there rather than on any facilitating role that we might play uh, in, that, uh, in that process. Um, one of the reasons that mispricing is the, is the biggest mover of illicit money across borders is because it can be done without anyone else in the country out of which the money is coming knowing about it. And it is the only mechanism uh, that, that provides that, other than putting a diamond between your toes and smuggling it out of Botswana or something. But other than, uh, other than any other method of, of uh, moving considerable amounts of illicit money requires somebody else in the country to know what you're doing or suspect what you're doing. The mispricing of trade does not require anyone else in the country to know what you're doing or suspect what you're doing. And that's why it is used so frequently, both in arm's length transactions and in multinational uh, uh, corporations. It is the easiest mechanism by which you can shift money across borders where nobody uh, can see it. Pablo, would you like to uh, weigh in on any of these things? No, not for now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I've learned a lot just by listening and I would prefer to do that. <laughs> okay. Dina? Um, I think just in agreement to what he's, he's saying, 
um, in Africa, I, I find African countries actually being part of the whole process of um, encouraging or actually facilitating the illicit flows of, uh, of capital. I think a good example is um, in my country, Zambia, where I come from, you find that, uh, for example, in the past, in the past five years or so, the government has been increasingly giving these tax havens to, to investors that are coming, especially to invest in the, in the copper mines. So what has been happening is that um, when an inv investor comes, they give them like five years of not paying any tax to government. So, so for five years, they will just be getting, they will be digging the copper and selling it without paying anything to the government. So by the time the five years is elapsing, that company, the, the investor actually goes and they invite their friends to take over and they're also given five years. So at the end of the day, you find that the, the government is not actually getting anything from, from the copper mines. But then they know that they're not getting anything but they, they don't want to do anything because for them they think it's a way of attracting foreign direct investment in the country. So I think to a larger extent, like curtailing the, this illicit uh, flow of this capital, I think for African countries won't be so easy as long as all they want for them is, um, is getting more and more investors into the country. So that's my view. Thank you, Tina. And Raymond would like to uh, comment. I want to add to what Tina said. A colleague of ours, Ava Jolie, I presume some of you may have heard of. She's a French magistrate of Norwegian nationality who, uh, who over the last uh, decade was extremely powerful in bringing down um, uh, ELF, the, uh, the French oil company that was involved in a great deal of skullduggery in Africa. Uh, Ava Jolie went to Zambia and assisted the Zambian government in renegotiating a copper contract uh, where Zambia was getting virtually nothing out of the contract. And her, her assisting in the renegotiation of that contract was opposed by a lot of uh, was opposed by uh, uh, international financial institutions that wanted the sanctity of the contract to take precedence. But Ava regarded it as uh, an odious contract, used that argument, and forced the renegotiation of it so that Zambia's take went from practically nothing up to um, a, a, a very satisfactory level. And while the copper company involved was, uh, uh, was uh, of course, opposed to the negotiation, Negotiations, they knew that they had such a good deal that they signed it at the end of the day. Uh, odious contracts can be, uh, can be offset. Uh, for those involved in extractive industries, in our judgment, the, uh, the most important step uh, in, in improving uh, the take of uh, developing countries from extractive uh, uh, industries is publishing the contract, making the contract a matter of public record. I have a question for the panel. You know, I'm thinking of the context within which we're holding this meeting, and that is eight months before uh, the meetings uh, in Muskoka. And I'm thinking, let's say that we here gathered as a, as a community of communities, perhaps, um, are going to be working on these issues in, in many different ways between now and then. Our, our task is to set some policy priorities to try to 
make clear and, and bring to more clarity what we think that the Canadian government should be doing as, uh, as representatives of the, of the people of Canada. And what well, we think that the, the kind of ethical and, um, and value-based leadership should look like. Um, so given that kind of agenda that's going to be on our, on our minds, that we're going to be working towards over the next few months, what do you think and how do you think we should be addressing the priorities that each of you has talked about in terms of our, our engagement with the Canadian government over these, and the Canadian people over these next months? Um, I, I will start by a very short reflection. Um, there has been uh, obviously quite a lot of talk about the G20. Um, I'm sorry, we have uh, two questions coming up. Maybe we take the questions? No, it's okay. You go ahead. Oh. No, we'll, we'll take okay. the questions. Um, one, there's been a lot of talk about the G20. One of them, uh, it seems to be that they, the G20 are supposed to be uh, the 20 most uh, powerful countries or the 20 wealthiest countries, um, 20 largest countries in the global economy. Um, there is a, is a very interesting uh, point to make is that the way it was designed actually at the, at the urge of the Canadian government and also the German government in 1999 and, and has continued so far, they are the 20 countries with the largest systemic influence on the global economy. And that has very little to do with aid. And that also has not that significant you know, to do with their importance in IFIs as a matter of of, of, as an example. Um, the, and the reason why, especially many developing countries are there, is <clears throat> because they are considered to be part of a potential problem. Yeah. And therefore, they should be put into the boat yeah, so that when the rules are made and when the, the implementation of the rules are committed on, those countries for sure would be in. Yeah. That is very, very different from the G8, which eventually, or the G7 actually, eventually came to represent a certain community of interest or a community in a, in a worldview. Yeah. The G20 does not have that. So when we are thinking on how to influence the G20, I will be rather careful and understand that it's a very different creature and it's a very particular creature. Thank you. As, as far as the agenda concerning developing countries is concerned, I would encourage uh, the NGO community to have a very strong outreach to CETA, uh, to the Canadian International Development uh, Agency. Um, I think CETA would welcome this, uh, would welcome uh, a, a considerable input from the NGO community. Um, without elaborating uh, on that, um, I, I think that uh, there's a natural affinity there that, uh, that CETA itself would find uh, uh, extremely useful. Okay. Thank you. Tina. Okay. Thank you. Um, we have a couple of questions here. Please. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Once again, I'm Soren Ambrose with Action Aid International, but this time I'm going to actually ask a question rather than make a comment, and it's for Pablo. Um, Pablo, you spoke about the, um, the problems of developing countries that are uh, so uh, dependent, sometimes monolithically, on uh, single or one or two different kinds of exports. 
And I, one of your recommendations was uh, some kind of regulation of uh, commodity prices. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that or if there's a prospect for some kind of commodity stabilization mechanism uh, going into the future that might be worth supporting. This is something that's been mentioned for years, but I haven't seen a convincing proposal about it. And I think it's uh, absolutely vital for developing countries. Please. I'm John Sinclair. I I wanted to really uh, have a question which is split between Raymond and, T and Tina. I found both of their presentations very, very interesting. And I'm reminded of when I was working on, um, on Africa many, many years ago when we talked about the vampire elite and believe it or not, the World Bank was actually writing about using that vocabulary in the 1980s. But, uh, but I've also just been involved in some work on the, on the two Congos around some aspects of policy change there. And what I really wanted to do was to sort of try and link the, the two forces that uh, the dream was talking about. I mean, the, the issue of, of whether we have sort of uh, corruption inside MNEs or corruption in a sense by within, within the societies, because that term, the vampire elite, was implicitly a statement, and I suppose this is partly pointed at Tina, that the elites of developing countries. In this particular study, the, the elites of Africa, I mean, the people often in government or in the senior levels of the bureaucracy, were a very large part of the problem in terms of sort of depriving their own citizens of part of this, uh, the, this wealth that was already inherent in, in their countries. And I wanted to see whether you, you had a sense that that was still the situation and how one could sort of move on that front. And I suppose for Raymond, my complimentary question is, you know, what, is the, what are the easy options, if you go back to what Canada might say at, uh, at Masoka and put on the table, in terms of changes in national law which could try to capture this issue of the evasion by M&Es? And I'm just wondering whether there's something simple that could be done in tax law or even in company law requiring maybe some of these sort of simple statements, public, more transparent things done. And if so, why, why aren't we doing it already, apart from the sort of lobbying that your group is obviously putting forward? Thank you. Um, I think it's a question for both Raymond and Pablo. Um, we, um, I work with the America's Policy Group at the CCIC, and we're watching um, a number of cases where um, international investments are linked to um, problems related to security, democracy, and human rights. Um, Honduras, the coup in Honduras is one present example where we're seeing these investments, national and international, holding up in a legal coup. And of course, in the case of Colombia, we see um, many lands uh, that were taken through violence, then sold to international, national and international companies. And that then becomes part of the legitimate economy. So what was once illegitimate uh, falls into you know, everyday mainstream um, trade and investment. So I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on the governance gaps and what is needed to ensure that the financial architecture doesn't um, uh, override that confluence of security, uh, human rights, and democracy. Thank you. Okay, apologies. I've exceeded my quota of questions already, I think. But um, just a quick response from Pablo and Tina uh, on on these calls, which seem to me somewhat futile to try and conclude the Doha round, 
by 20 countries, 19 of which, from what I've heard, have put up protectionist measures um, from a year ago. So where's the sense in that, in particular, when it's pushing for further liberalization of finance, which I, th I thought was the problem? Um, so that's one question for the two of you. And then just, uh, I guess, for the whole panel, um, picking up on Raymond's point about linking to CETA, there seems to be also um, some sense of irony that uh, the biggest winner of all of this, in a way, is, is the finance departments of 20 countries. And finance is now, finance and economic issues are the priority. And, you know, do we see any discussions of development in that? Thank you. I suppose this question is addressed to Raymond, and perhaps he could give us some advice on what I think is ultimately an ethical issue here. Because I think we know that among some of the worst actors in Latin America, Africa, and also in parts of Asia are Canadian metal mining companies. And that some of them are so powerful and some of you in this room will know which particular one I'm talking about, that they can shut down even the most prestigious human rights organizations in this country by threatening multi-billion lawsuits. That is a technique that is used. Now, the Canadian government believes that the activities of the, these mining companies brings employment benefit and all sorts of economic growth, and to some extent, of course, that is perfectly possible, but we also know that they are among precisely those companies who practice those things described to us of um, transfer pricing and all, all those kind of things. Now, if we are here in Canada going to approach um, this Halifax Initiative, uh, the, the G8 or the G20 meeting in this country, it would be most embarrassing to have as I think we should have, some people demonstrating outside complaining about the Canadian mining companies. And so I am wondering how a, a group like this can reconcile or deal with this or approach uh, this issue, if it's a real one, and perhaps uh, we could get some advice from the platform. Thank you. Just a couple of, of comments, really. I was so delighted by the question raised by our colleague from the Department of Finance, uh, and I was a bit disappointed it wasn't uh, responded to. Um, her question was, how, how do we actually link these issues that Raymond brings up of uh, illicit flows on the one hand and development financing on the other? And I, th I think there's a real opportunity at the G20, G8 meetings coming up to do precisely this because the G20 has already taken on the issue of climate change uh, as an issue that it must tackle. And recent estimates that the World Bank has uh, brought out show that the costs of adaptation to, to climate change are enormous. You know, they're way beyond the capacity of any aid agencies right now. But the kinds of orders of magnitude that Raymond talks about in terms of uh, illicit flows start to match the kinds of needs that uh, are, are going to be felt by developing countries as they struggle to adapt uh, to, to climate change. So that's one comment. The other is picked up from Tina's uh, presentation, which relates to the real 
um, crucial importance of uh, domestic resource mobilization. And again, I, I think finance departments of the world and trade departments of the world have a, have a very important opportunity here. We're doing some work actually on how to enhance domestic resource mobilization in sub-Saharan Africa in a series of, of case studies. And um, one of our, our partners, our southern partners from Mozambique during the course of our research, um, gave the example of Moselle, which is a, an aluminum producer in Mozambique. And um, the, the, the uh, evidence that, that was presented was that uh, Moselle, uh, just like the copper firms that you're referring to in Zambia, uh, get off scot-free in terms of taxation. But if, if in this case, if Moselle were taxed at the same rate as um, uh, domestic corporations in, in, uh, in Mozambique, um, revenues in uh, Mozambique would be doubled. Government revenues would be doubled simply by um, disallowing this tax exemption that uh, this foreign mining company uh, is allowed to get. So just two comments there on how you bring these issues together. Thank you. Thank you. Please. Final question, final comment. My name is Gail Hurley. I work for Eurodad, the European network on debt and development based in Brussels. Um, a comment more than a question. It's true that in Europe there are some governments who are actively pursuing the issue or the problems of tax havens and tax evasion, and that's certainly very welcome from um, the perspective of many civil society organizations active in Europe, but there's also a number of countries, I can think of Luxembourg, for example, who are actively blocking any sort of progress in this area. Obviously, it has a status as a, as a tax haven. So this does pose challenges for sort of pan-European advocacy efforts um, uh, from our side. So, I mean, any thoughts on how we can try to overcome this sort of... Uh, it's a dilemma. You know, some countries really are quite progressive in Europe on this and, and others sort of diametrically opposed is, is definitely a, a huge challenge. Um, I wanted to add an element on the issue of raising and retaining resources for financing for development, and that's the issue of stolen assets, the issue of um, developing country wealth stolen by officials, public officials, governments, and stashed um, overseas um, in rich country banks, tax havens. It's, it's all part of the same coin, if you like, another side of the same coin. These stolen assets, are, some estimates place them at around 101 trillion US dollars, which could be another important resource mobilized for financing for development, and only 4.4 million has actually been um, returned to, um, to the countries in question. The World Bank, a couple of years ago, did launch the Stolen Asset Recovery Initiative, uh, the STAR initiative. But if you actually look at um, both progress by the initiative and investment, in the initiative, um, you look at you know the six countries um, have invested 6.3 million dollars over two years to support the activities of, of this initiative, and you really see where rich country governments' priorities really do lie. You know they can mobilise suddenly 1.1 trillion dollars, you know in in invariably new loans, new debt, and yet you know 
uh, other such initiatives which might have more of a lasting impact, such as this, uh, you know, get uh, chicken feed, so to speak. So just wanted to add um, an element on the issue of stolen asset recovery. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of the people who asked questions just now. And um, I'll uh, give the panelists a chance to respond as they'd like to. Who'd like to start? You'd like to start, Tina? Okay, there you are. I think I'll respond to, to two questions. The first one, which uh, talked about how, how we can move from government being part of the problem in this whole corruption and um, illicit flows issue. Um, I think, in my view, we talked already about uh, encouraging um, domestic investment. I think that's the most important thing that governments in African countries should promote. I think when I refer to that issue on the, 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 COPA, the COPA thing, where governments always want to get foreign invest, in, investors, I think even during the crisis we saw how foreign investors actually ran away very, very quickly when they, when they saw that the, the copper prices weren't doing very well on the international market. I think had it been for, uh, for domestic investors, I think they, that couldn't have happened at all. At, the, at least they could have done something. So I still think that it's very important for government to ensure that they promote um, local investment in these areas. I think sometimes it's just an, an underestimation of the government that local people don't really have money. I think they're I remember when during the, the, the hive of the, of the crisis, when a lot of investors had gone out, I think government, government, the government officials were going out in different countries telling them that uh, they wanted uh, foreign investors to come in the country. And yet within the country there was nothing, uh, no, no kinds of address that they wanted to get anyone interested to run the mines. So I think this uh, attitude of governments not trusting or actually uh, thinking that local people can actually do something for the country is not a good idea. So I think it's very important that governments, even when they're asking help from developed countries, should in one way or the other help uh, or promote investments of local people. So I think that's one thing. But then the other, the other thing would be the promotion of majors between foreign and local companies. So if if, for example, they, they, they want an investor in, in, in one mine, they, they could get the foreign and local investor to come together so that they, they merge and um, invest in that, in that company. So for me, that would be some kind of security for a country. And um, coming to the issue of the conclusion of the Doha, the Doha round, I still think it's the, 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 the negotiations are very far from complete. I think uh, what is lacking there is not just the technical capacity to negotiate, but it's the political will. I think we can't really see the political will in the negotiations. And um, I think recently UK announced that they were going to actually increase their support to the common agricultural uh, policy by about 60% by 2011. I think that already shows us that they're not even willing to reduce on the subsidies that have been given to their, to their citizens. So the Doha round for me is actually not an answer to Africa's problem, and it's actually not even close to complete. So I think we'll continue talking about this because already we're going into 10 years uh, uh, from the inception of the negotiations and nothing seemed to, to getting as close to the conclusion. So I think it's still a dream. Thank you. Thank you, Tina. And who'd like to go next? Raymond? Um, 
a lot of questions uh, to respond to. I'll try to just focus on uh, a couple of them. First of all, corruption. Um, corruption inside a country is bad enough. And Transparency International has done an extremely good job of focusing on that uh, in many countries around the world. The corruption that disappears offshore is even worse because it does not have any effect, uh, any beneficial effect in the economy out of which it comes. Very little of the corrupt money, and for that matter, very little of the criminal component and very little of the tax evading component that disappears illegally out of a country ever turns around and comes back in. Our estimate is 80 to 90 percent is a permanent outward uh, transfer. Uh, the, those proceeds that go abroad and stay abroad are a dead loss to the local uh, uh, economy. So it's the, it's the corrupt component that goes out completely that is the most damaging. Are there any easy options in addressing uh, these sorts of things? Um, is tax evasion a predicate offense under Canada's anti-money laundering laws? I don't know the answer to that. I know that Canada's law in general states that if the activity abroad would have been illegal here, it's illegal to knowingly handle that activity. But I'm not sure whether tax evasion is included. If it's not, tax evasion should be a predicate offense, even when generated abroad, should be a predicate offense uh, under um, uh, anti-money laundering law. We're trying to get that same thing accomplished uh, in the United States. Um, bankers want to hold on to their right to receive tax evading money coming from abroad. Corporations want to hold on to their right to do abusive transfer pricing. This is where the pressure uh, comes against the kinds of things that we're talking about. The bottom line with banks is that they want to be able to receive the tax evading money and the bottom line with corporations is that they want to be able to continue to do abusive transfer pricing. Um, transfer pricing is a legitimate issue. Uh, at what price do you put on something that you're trading across borders? It becomes abusive in the law when you use it to manipulate uh, uh, taxes. That, uh, that, uh, the potential to do that needs to be uh, uh, addressed. Um, your point about the ethical dimensions of, uh, of this. Um, the human rights community, I think it's fair to say, has for decades focused far more on political and civil rights uh, rather than on economic deprivation. Um, understanding this, uh, we are uh, holding a conference at Yale University in December, bringing together for the first time the human rights community and our illicit financial flows community to talk about economic deprivation as, uh, uh, as a key concern, what needs to be a key concern within the human rights uh, uh, community. There are one or two human rights organizations that have begun to address this, primarily looking at corruption, not looking at the broader issue of illicit financial flows. But we're bringing these two communities together for the first time. Um, uh, Thomas Pogge, who some of you may know, is a philosopher at Yale, um, st uh, studied under John Rawls. Uh, Pogge has been called the ultra-Rawlsian uh, ultra philosopher. Uh, Rawls published his book, uh, A Theory of Justice, in 1971 and completely changed the dialogue uh, 
on, on uh, uh, these kinds of issues. Uh, we're holding a conference in December specifically for the purpose of bringing these two uh, communities together. Now, how to link illicit financial flows and development finance? I would ask that you do just that, link them. Um, I um, um, made a proposal in uh, Istanbul, what was it, Gail, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, whatever it was, at the World Bank meetings, um, suggesting, suggesting that um, uh, the next conference of the World Bank, the next annual meetings of the World Bank include the issue of illicit financial flows strongly on its agenda. The whole of the economic equation for development has never been put on the World Bank's agenda. The whole of the economic equation for development. You can define the economic equation for development any way you want to, so long as it includes total money into developing countries, total money out of developing countries, and what's left over for the developing countries. That basic formula has never been addressed. We encourage the panelists who were with us, the government panelists who were with us, to do what they could to get the next issue, the next annual meeting of the World Bank focused on the whole of the financial equation uh, for, um, uh, for development. The uh, final comment on the STAR initiative, um, um, I'm all for uh, the, uh, the STAR initiative. I'm all for other assets at stolen asset uh, recovery. Um, uh, this is primarily useful for its deterrent effect on uh, other money continuing that wants to flow out rather than on its recovery effect. The recovery is going to be fairly modest, but it does have a strong effect, a deterring, a deterring effect on people who would continue to take their money out. I'll be very brief. I understand we're very late. Uh, so on the question on commodity uh, price speculation, um, I think what, what could be done is technically fairly feasible, and actually there are recent examples. Uh, when in the worst of the crisis in the last quarter, last year, um, there were some kind of uh, options and some kind of uh, financial instruments that, that were banned in the, in the US, and uh, they were banned in, in some other stock markets. And, uh, and the reason was because they, they, were, um, they were distorting and they were worsening the crisis. And, and actually, that, that is thought to be fairly effective. A similar thing can be done with, with commodity uh, price speculation. Uh, you, it's not that you can ban them completely. It would not be that, um, that successful. But you can have shut down clauses in which when the price has a certain level of, of variance, uh, a certain variability on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, you just shut down the market temporarily. And, uh, and that, is, that is actually done in many stock markets around the world with, with normal stock, but not with, uh, not with future pricing. And um, the same can be done uh, to reduce the number of transactions. And I, and I would argue that this should be done on a gradual level uh, so that you, you have a, a number and a, a volume of transactions that is more or less indicative of what is happening in the real economy. You see, you, you cannot have um, trade in, in oil and gas for, uh, for, for close to a half a trillion dollars a year, and, and you have a commodity market on oil and gas, which is perhaps two to three trillion. 
you see. The, it's just that we're not consuming that much gas and, and, and oil, and we don't sell it, and therefore we don't buy it. So it has nothing to do with what's going on. Um, so in on respect to the question on um, how, for example, certain uh, operations of foreign direct investors uh, from, from Canada or other countries in Latin America are, are interacting with, with situations in which human rights are, are, being, uh, are being violated. Um, I think a, a very simple principle to operationalize is that no foreign direct investment operation uh, should, be, uh, should be taken out from an equalization clause with whatever you do abroad has to be at least as good as what you do at home. See, So every single operation, every single dimension of you, you know, operating abroad has to be the same as what you do at home. And otherwise, you should be liable in courts here or whatever the, your country, your home country is, you see. Um, in respect to the, and I, I think that has to do, that is complementary to what I explained before during the presentation. You know, most developing countries have, very, have been pretty much neutered, you know, with these bilateral, you know, investment treaties and, and, the, and the World Bank court. You cannot expect Honduras to take Barrick to court and win. You see, it has to be done here. See, or you cannot expect even you know, a willing Colombian government to take such you know, company to court and win, because they won't. And in um, respect to the Doha development agenda, uh, I come from a part of the world where it really pays off to be pessimist. And so um, <laughs> I think that you, know, you have to think that things could, go, could get worse. Uh, how it could get worse at the WTO? Well, you know, um, there's a lot talked about the BRIC countries and about the largest emerging economies, which are actually countries. And uh, you know, as they, as they grow apart from what most of the developing world has as, as, as key interests, uh, then you would have fractures in the, in the coalitions among developing countries. And therefore, the bargains that, that could be obtained in the future at the WTO may be even worse for the, the weakest developing countries than the, than the one that is on the table right now. I would like to thank the panelists who've um, presented and given us so much to think about. Uh, Tina Nanyangwi, Raymond Baker, and Pablo Heydrich, thank you so much. Thank you.